Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. For a long time, nuclear fusion only existed in the movies, like this moment from Spider-Man 2. We have a successful fusion reaction. The power of the sun in the palm of my hand. But now, nuclear fusion is a real thing. Last week, there was a holy grail moment for the scientific field of nuclear fusion. That is Pranshu Verma. He's an innovations reporter at The Post. And he's been following this huge development in the science world. Today, we're here to talk about fusion, combining two particles into one. Last week, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm announced that scientists finally produced a nuclear fusion reaction. It's the first time it has ever been done in a laboratory, anywhere in the world. Simply put, this is one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. Right? Nuclear fusion is basically how the sun creates energy. And scientists want to replicate that process, but here on Earth, in a lab. This has been something that scientists have been trying to do for decades and have never been able to. And so for the first time, it kind of showed us that there might be a possibility that we could actually generate energy for electricity use in a way that might be sustainable. To be clear, there is a lot that needs to happen before nuclear fusion is a thing that powers your toaster. But if scientists can harness this kind of energy on a larger scale, it could change the world in a lot of unexpected ways. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 22nd. Today, I talk with Pranchu about the decades-long journey to achieve nuclear fusion and what kind of impact it could have on the climate crisis. So who are the scientists that actually made this breakthrough happen? So these are scientists at what's called the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory out in California. And they were using lasers to replicate the reactions that are inside the sun to create power. Many said it was not possible. The laser wasn't energetic enough. The targets would never be precise enough. Our modeling and simulation tools were just not up to the task of this complex physics. But this is really what national labs are for. Tackling the most difficult scientific challenges head-on, learning from the inevitable setbacks, and building toward the next idea. It is kind of being compared to the Kitty Hawk moment when the Wright brothers first flew their planes in North Carolina and how quickly that then inspired the actual field of aircrafts to progress after they proved that that central thing of having a winged plane fly is possible. 
So, Pranchu, you are giving me chills as you're describing all of this. But I just want to understand a little bit more. Like, what exactly is nuclear fusion? So, the essential science of nuclear fusion is basically having two atoms kind of smashed together at really, really high speeds. Nuclear fusion is when you take really light elements and smash them together really hard to create heavier elements. And in that process, there is a little bit release of energy. And when they do that, the elements from that reaction transform into electricity that people can use to power their toasters, power their car, power their laptop. And so that's the essential science of what scientists are trying to do here. But what confuses me here is, like, don't we already have nuclear power? I mean, I'm thinking back to, like, the 80s and Chernobyl, that famous disaster at a power plant in the Soviet Union. It seems like that's been around for a long time. So how is this different from the kind of nuclear power that's been in existence for decades? The other types of things that we've seen in the nuclear energy world are trying to take atoms apart and not smash them together. And when we try to take atoms apart, there's a lot of risks that are associated with that. There can be a risk of reactions getting out of hand and blowing up or radioactive waste that's generated. There has been a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union and the Soviets have admitted that it happened. The Soviet version is this. One of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl atomic power plant near the city of Kiev was damaged. Government officials said that a breakdown in an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania today is probably the worst nuclear reactor accident to date. And so this is actually the first time that we're actually using the powers of nuclear energy by smashing two items together and not ripping them apart. And how long have scientists been working on this? I mean... You know, at least since the 1950s, right, the Soviets pioneered this donut-shaped machine called the tokamak. And this is a, a machine, when you get into the specifics of nuclear fusion, it's not actually what the scientists who announced their major breakthrough last week used. They used lasers, but there were some scientists that created machines that used magnets, you know, in the 1950s. And they've been trying to perfect and reach the moment that the folks who use lasers reached last week since the 1950s. There's been a lot of stops and starts, and there's been global, international types of, you know, projects and collaborations that have had, you know, some progress, but also some drawbacks. And uh, it's been a pretty long, long, long time coming to get this type of breakthrough. But <laughs> I, I feel embarrassed asking this, but, you know, why is it so hard? As a person who doesn't really understand that much of this science. What you're describing, making two atoms go really fast, smash together, I don't know, that sounds kind of straightforward. Um, why has this proven to be a thing that has taken decades to get this far? You know, I mean, let's look at what the folks last week did. So they didn't even produce net energy, as we call it, for a second. It was for a few billionths of a second. And to even do that, they had to point over 190 incredibly high-powered lasers all at this little tiny pellet that held plasma. And when you pointed them all at this tiny little pellet at a super high energy, you know, just for a few billionths of a second, you were able to get a scientific reaction that created more energy than was required to put into it. And that was a scientific achievement that had never happened because 
of how hard it is to get that many lasers to that high level of a heat level. And the buildings that even house these things take years to even build because they require special types of scientific materials to house these types of things. And so, you know, just scientists really have to chip away one after the other after the other until they can finally get to this kind of holy grail moment, as they're saying. And so why is that such a big deal? Like, what are the potential implications of this? So if we're able to do this, the potential upside is huge in that it's a clean, really cheap, and nearly limitless source of energy that doesn't emit carbon or generate any sort of radioactive waste. This milestone moves us one significant step closer to the possibility of zero carbon, abundant fusion energy powering our society. After the break, Pranchu explains when we could actually use nuclear fusion and how it compares to solar and wind power. We'll be right back. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. So, Pranchu, I know that last week's announcement was a big deal, but I want to know when we can actually use nuclear fusion to start powering our cars and running our home electricity. Like, is this something that we could start seeing next year? Yeah, the bad news is is that it's not going to be in real life in the next year or two. This is something on the order of decades or more, or possibly never. I think that's something that we need to really grasp with, is that while this exciting announcement is really a boon for science, there are a lot of hurdles, some that we know about and some that we don't even know about, that are going to come up along the way that might and never make it a possibility or make it a possibility 30, 40, 50 years from now. But again, as we know, climate change is rapidly progressing and the war- the planet is rapidly warming. And so every moment really matters. You know, people are racing against the clock here to try to get this done as soon as possible, hoping that they can. Making this cheap is a really interesting part about why this is potentially so powerful because Right now, it's not cheap to have nuclear fusion, right? It's still expensive to discover how to make this a power source. But once you do, if you can do it at a large enough scale and you can get enough government support to subsidize large parts of it because that'll still be needed, you can theoretically make a cheaper source of limitless power that is again, like we said, doesn't emit carbon emissions or radioactive waste. And so you're not only helping the climate, but you're also making a cheap source of energy that's clean and renewable for people to have a hard time affording it. And as we know, right, energy costs, when they rise, especially with gasoline, who do they affect the most? Individuals who are low on the socioeconomic scale. And so this is definitely if possible and thought of in a way to make it cheap as possible, a pretty big game changer for energy equity and making the right to energy a potential reality. 
And if there is a world where we could start using this process to actually provide energy in a widespread way, and I know that you said that that world could be 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, or maybe never, which is a little depressing, um, are there downsides to this? Like, are there arguments against using nuclear fusion for this kind of power? Yeah. And so the the folks on the nuclear fusion side will argue that there is less of a public safety risk than what happened at Chernobyl or what happened in, you know, other places. There is still an unknowable safety risk for sure that, that comes with using nuclear energy and also doing this at such a large scale, at least in the United States. Many experts say you can't have just one power plant off in the middle of nowhere that then just plugs into the electrical grid and just powers the entire country on nuclear fusion power just for the realities of of the, the failures of our electric grid. That just isn't possible. So you actually might need some small levels of these nuclear reactors, which they still are, actually near towns and actually near cities. And so again, with that comes, you know, risks that we may not even know about because we've not done this at scale yet. You know, there are a few private companies that are actually trying to pilot what does nuclear fusion look like on a large level to actually power a town. And we don't even have that answer yet. We won't have that answer for maybe another few years. And it's going to require some education from the nuclear fusion community to say, well, why are those not a risk? And I don't think the community is really getting their messaging across yet because they're still facing scientific challenges. You know, they haven't even gotten to the part of, well, how do we sell this? to the public. And so, you know, there's going to be an interesting fight that comes ahead that we actually are pretty curious to see how it'll pan out. Though I do think the one thing that nuclear fusion has going for it is that it it is so present in in science fiction that I think so many of us can think of Movies, TV shows between oh my god, that's Spider-Man right. Two, Back to the Future. <laughs> I was like, say, Back everyone's to the future, talking right? about Didn't nuclear... that have nuclear fusion in it at the ending or something like that? Exactly. Yep, yep. Everyone's talking about nuclear fusion as like the future when it comes to how we imagine what a progressive, like a clean energy future looks like for us. So um, it seems like that would at least help get that message across. I think it is going to be something that the scientific community is going to have to grapple with because even from my end, you know, uh, I'm an innovations reporter. I'm not a, a nuclear fusion reporter. It is a difficult topic to engage with because there's just layers and layers of complexity around the very basic, you know, actions of it that I think often trip people up. And I think it's going to be a real messaging uh, issue that people are going to have to, you know, grapple with because at the at the certain end of it, you know, it's easy to understand wind power. It's easy to understand solar power. But nuclear fusion power is so out there in terms of a potential that, you know, it's going to be an interesting communication challenge for the community going forward. So what's the case uh, for saying that nuclear fusion could actually be better than things like solar power or wind power for providing mass energy? So with solar power and with wind power, which have already had significant advancements, they still have a central issue with it, which is what happens if the sun doesn't shine and what happens if the wind doesn't blow, right? Relying on things that are power sources that are a little variable in the amount in which they create power creates us a little beholden to, you know, things like near-universal sun or near-universal wind and creating those conditions. The thing with nuclear power Fusion, theoretically, is if it's mastered, it isn't reliant on 
you know, something external like the sun or the wind. It's reactors creating a scientific experiment running 24-7 and doing that without the constraints of some things like solar or wind have. And I want to talk a little bit more about those comparisons with something that we actually have and use a lot now, things like solar power and wind power. I wonder if there's an argument against putting so much time, manpower, resources, money into trying to develop nuclear fusion when we have these other options that we can use today that can help the climate crisis right now, you know, not something that's a solution for 50 years in in the future, that there's so much of an urgency to get off fossil fuels in this moment that, like, why are we trying to invest in this thing that's still so far away when we should be putting more attention on the things that could actually be the solution for now? I think that's a really valid point, and I think it's a point that people are making. I think the one thing that is going in the benefit of the nuclear fusion community is the allure of having it work. It's the big bet. If it works, it works in a massive way. And so I think the way that you look at the government and the way that they're thinking about it now in the Biden administration is we want to put a little bit more money towards this big bet now that we're seeing some of the science unfold and we're seeing some more of the private sector also get involved and collaborate with large government-led projects. But again, I think this is one of the big criticisms that nuclear fusion has. And and kind of like what we said earlier, we know that we don't have 50 years left anymore. If we don't have game-changing solutions in the next 5, 9, 10, 12 years, some things that we might already have that just need to scale, we're going to be too late. And I think this is the moment that makes it even a little trickier for federal budget allocators because... When you have, you know, advancements like what we have last week to prove the science and people calling it a Kitty Hawk moment, it makes it a little harder to pull away from the big bet because now the big bet seems a little bit more possible. But again, I think that's why it's important to understand, well, how possible is it? There are so many of these challenges. And if you really want to make this big bet come through quicker, money is time and time is money, as somebody who talked to me said from Columbia University. The government is dedicating on an order of $700 million a year, maybe a little bit more, to to fusion science. And they need to do a few billion dollars more um, and then also have the private sector also match that or even surpass that to get to some of these advancements. And even then, that might mean a Within a decade, we have a test facility up, not the reality of everyone just plugging in their toasters and getting nuclear fusion to power it. So what is going to happen next in all of this? Or like, what, there was this big breakthrough, and then and then what? What are we, what is going to be the next big development? I'm really glad you asked that because we. I think we need to unpack this breakthrough a little bit because it helps shape what actually happens next. So... The breakthrough that happened last week, it was in a sense for the entire field of nuclear fusion. But when you look at it a little deeper, right, nuclear fusion, there's a couple of ways to get around it. And it really depends on the type of reactor that you use. And so the, the big two camps essentially are the folks that use lasers, right? And then there's the other folks that use magnets or magnetic fields. And both of them are just different ways of, of heating this plasma up high enough so that you can smash those two atoms together and then electricity comes out of that energy reaction. And so, so you know, there, yeah, some folks are saying, well, you know, last week was a big win for the laser folks, but for us magnet folks, 
you know, we're not really too sure, you know, what this is going to do for us. You know, if you actually want to power the world with nuclear fusion that's made by lasers, that's really hard, right? For the laser community, they're going to have to figure out now their own challenges. Now the pressure's on for the magnet community, which actually has gotten more private sector money than the laser community has if you look at it from dollars to dollars. And so there is some folks saying that, you know, the bigger bet here is actually on magnets because it seems more realistic. But still, the magnet community is going to need their holy grail moment. So then, Pranchu, what do you think we should be feeling in this moment? Like, should we be looking at this scientific development as a moment of hope or a moment for skepticism or somewhere in between? The way I've been putting it is like, this is a win for science, no doubt. But to see this win for science translate into a win for humanity is still a little far away. And we can't say that this is really a win for humanity yet. There's a lot more work that needs to be done to get that statement to be backed up by the facts. Pancho, thank you so much. Thank you. Pranshu Verma covers innovation for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is produced by Ariel Plotnik, edited by Lucy Perkins, and mixed by Sam Baer. I am so glad that Post Reports is part of your listening routine. As we close out the year, there is a great way to show your support for this podcast and start the new year with everything that The Washington Post has to offer. Right now, you can save over 70% on a new premium subscription to The Washington Post. And that new premium subscription comes with a bonus subscription for you to share with someone else. You can find this deal at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.